And it's uh, the book of Daniel, chapter 4. I've called the sermon the pride of a potentate. I wonder, and then I thought, I wonder if everybody knows what a potentate is. I mean, we're having some kind of tapes tonight to eat. Uh, what was that kind of potato or... What was it you had tonight? What did you eat tonight? Huh? A baked potato. Is that the same as a potentate? Okay, Daniel chapter 4. This chapter of Daniel was written with Daniel's help and his direction concerning Nebuchadnezzar's second dream and the subsequent experience under the judgment of God. The timeline is worth knowing here. This incident occurs 30 years after the fiery furnace rescue we studied last week. Daniel is now 50 years old. Nebuchadnezzar has become very prosperous and powerful and very prideful. Chapter 4 of Daniel is a picture of the growing pride of Nebuchadnezzar alongside of the sovereignty of God. Pride is one of the deadliest sins that redirects the personality of someone, but never for the better. Pride can dissolve a marriage, ruin a ministry, even cause God to be against us. 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 5, part of the verse reads, God opposes the proud, but shows favor to the humble. The Apostle Paul tells us in Romans that the law regarding covetousness, that's the 10th commandment, thou shalt not covet, was the catalyst that brought him to Christ. For me, it was a chapter on pride in C.S. Lewis's book, Mere Christianity. Here's what he wrote. There is one vice of which no man in the world is free, meaning no person, no man or woman, which everyone in the world loathes when they see it in others, and which hardly any people, except some Christians, ever imagine that they are guilty themselves. There is no fault which we are more unconscious of in ourselves, and the more we have it in ourselves, the more we dislike it in others." It was that chapter and that statement in Lewis's book that broke my atheistic stubbornness and was used by the Holy Spirit to bring me to a saving knowledge of Jesus. I literally felt when I was reading it as if he had written it just specially for me. Initially, this chapter of Daniel should surprise us. After all, the evidence Nebuchadnezzar had been given in the decades of the patience of God I mean, with all of that, it's hardly conceivable that Nebuchadnezzar could still possibly believe he had control over anything at all. But pride soon forgets and gives credit to oneself rather than to our creator God. So Daniel chapter 4, starting at verse 1. It starts off this way. King Nebuchadnezzar, so imagine that uh, he's sort of here to talk to us tonight. And so, uh, King Nebuchadnezzar, to the nations and peoples of every language who live in all the earth, 
may you prosper greatly. Nebuchadnezzar had come to think of himself as the ruler of the whole world. Verse 2, it is my pleasure, if he were here tonight, he'd say, it was my pleasure tonight to tell you about the miraculous signs and wonders that the Most High God has performed for me. Now, you need to know that God is described as Most High more times in this chapter than any other chapter in the Bible. Nebuchadnezzar had seen God's power first in the initial dream of the statue that Daniel interpreted, and then as we saw last week in the fiery furnace, and finally another dream that Daniel correctly interpreted, uh, which became the proverbial straw that broke the camel's back, or in this case, the dream that caused Nebuchadnezzar to truly recognize the Most High God. Now, I answered a question on Sunday's sermon I asked the question, I said somebody had asked me this, can I become a Christian and not tell anyone? And my answer is that when someone has any kind of experience with the Most High God, it's impossible to stay silent. Nebuchadnezzar did not stay silent in this case, as we shall eventually see. And so in verse 3, he goes on to say in his testimony, how great are his signs, the most high God's signs, how mighty his wonders, his kingdom is an eternal kingdom, his dominion endures from generation to generation. You'd think you were reading some of the Psalms. As a matter of fact, I had planned to quote about four or five of them and decided since the sermon's already an hour and a half long, I wouldn't. <laughs> Nebuchadnezzar is nearing the end of his life. He is old and recognizing his mortality. He will not be reigning forever. But God will. None of us are indispensable. Actually, someone has said that the graveyards of our towns and cities are full of indispensable people. So in a sense, these are Nebuchadnezzar's last words. Last words can be very impacting. I have a, a list on my computer of last words from every kind of person personality. But I like this one from Dwight Eisenhower. These are his last words. I've always loved my wife. I've always loved my children. I've always loved my grandchildren. I've always loved my country. I want to go. God, take me. Wow. Imagine even having the ability to say that before you finally go to see Jesus. So here are Nebuchadnezzar's words. Verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. Now, God spoke to Nebuchadnezzar when he least expected it. He was doing very well and had no sense of need. His enemies were defeated. His people were happy with him, and his health was great. He might have been wearing a T-shirt with life is good written on it. So God was about to create a sense of need that would cause him to recognize the God of heaven. This whole chapter is a picture of how God deals with all of us, really, individually. Pride and success go together and most often lead even Christians astray, not just non-Christians. If we isolate at all, rather than maintain vulnerable relationships within the body of Christ, we may soon be unaware of heading in the wrong direction. 
I could just go on and on about that. If you've been around this church for any length of time, you know it's almost, it's my thing. We need one another. And to not have uh, necessary relationships with others and we to not be a necessary relationship to others, especially in the body of Christ, will never, it doesn't matter what you read, it doesn't matter what you write, it doesn't matter what you uh, think, you will not be able to maintain a really good relationship with the Lord if, you don't, or if you're not interdependent, meaning you need other Christians. I mean, sometimes I've been driving to the church in the past, and just everything, nothing's working right. And, and just arriving at the church and having the first, hello, how are you? I'm fine, thank you. And later on, maybe I'll tell somebody the truth. And uh, <laughs> just being around, even tonight, coming here and having some food and talking to various people, uh, it, just that little bit changes us. I look forward to our home fellowships on, uh, that we have uh, twice a month in our home. And uh, sometimes, yeah, I can hardly wait sometimes, just waiting at the door, watching for the first car to pull up so we can start a conversation and I can listen to his or her statement about what they did and then I can try to one-up them and it's a great night. <laughs> In a sermon on pride, I heard this sermon myself. Uh, Chuck Swindle named the sermon, this is the name of a sermon, Pride Stinks. And he said in the sermon, most people don't smell their own stink. I guess say more about that, but forget it. 2 Samuel 7 records a prayer of King David. Now listen to this. This is King David, and he's praying. And now may it please you to bless the house of your servant so that it may continue forever before you. For you have spoken, this is King David speaking to God, and when you grant a blessing to your servant, oh, sovereign Lord, it's an eternal blessing. And then four chapters later, we read the tragic story of David and Bathsheba that led to adultery, deception, and murder. You see, he was separated from the people. He was supposed to be in battle. Instead, he was alone, and he was on the roof of a house, and he saw a beautiful woman, and everything falls apart from there. Here is uh, some exceptionally good advice. 1 Corinthians 10, 12. So if you think you are standing firm, be careful that you don't fall. Don't ever take things for granted. So watch the contrast. Think how quickly life can change. Let's go back to verse 4. So verse 4. I, Nebuchadnezzar, this is his testimony now. Uh, everything else has happened. Now we're reading his testimony. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at home in my palace, contented and prosperous. I had a dream that made me afraid. As I was lying in bed, the images and visions that passed through my mind terrified me. So I commanded that all the wise men of Babylon uh, be brought before me to interpret the dream for me. And when the magicians, enchanters, astrologers, and diviners came, I told them the dream, but they could not interpret it for me. Now, if you've been here through the study, these men were far more cautious this time than the last time. Previously, Nebuchadnezzar refused to tell them the dream and threatened their very lives. This time, they knew he would call on Daniel, so they wisely refused to even try and interpret the dream. And in his pride, Nebuchadnezzar only wanted to shame them. He didn't like them a little bit. So verse 8, he's giving his testimony. Finally, Daniel came into my presence. That would have only been because he called Daniel. And I told him the dream. 
Oh, he's called Belteshazzar after the name of my God, small g God, and the spirit of the holy God, small g again, is in him. So obviously Nebuchadnezzar was not yet converted to Yahweh as he still saw one of his gods as being part of his life. But he knew that Daniel's God was able to reveal the meaning of the dream. He knew that. Now take notice that Daniel kept his commitment to God in all these years. Daniel remained faithful to God in spite of working for a godless government among men who despised his spiritual commitment to biblical ethics and prayer, as we'll see later in the account of Daniel's life. So Nebuchadnezzar had confidence calling on Daniel for help, even though he had not yet learned to call on Daniel's God for help. But that would come. So verse 9. I said, Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, I know that the spirit of the holy gods, again, still small g there, is in you, and no mystery is too difficult for you. Here is my dream interpret it for me. If you read this passage carefully, you can see that there's a warm relationship here between Daniel and the king, Nebuchadnezzar. So verse 10, these are the visions I saw while lying in bed. I looked, and there before me stood a tree in the middle of the land. It really can read best for us in the middle of the earth. Its height was enormous. The tree grew large and strong, and its top touched the sky. It was visible to the ends of the earth. Its leaves were beautiful, its fruit abundant, and on it was food for all. And under it, the wild animals found shelter, and the birds lived in its branches. From its Every creature was fed from it. In the visions I saw while lying in bed, I looked. And there before me was a holy one, a messenger coming down from heaven. Now, this word for messenger or angel is only here in the Bible. It's the only place you can find it. It means watchman, and it comes from the verb meaning to be wakeful or to be on the watch, on guard. God watches over the earth and is sending one of his angels, his watchful ones, with a word of warning, pointing out that Nebuchadnezzar didn't measure up to the standard of holiness set by the one and only holy God. Now he's going on. He called the angel in a loud voice, cut down the tree and trim off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the animals flee from under it and the birds from its branches. But let the stump and its roots bound with iron and bronze remain in the ground, in the grass of the field. And the reason for that is the possibility that the tree might grow again. Now, something happens here. Let him be drenched. Now, he was talking about a tree, yes, but now he's personifying it. Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. And let him live with the animals among the plants of the earth. And let his mind be changed from that of a man. And let him be given the mind of an animal till seven times pass by for him. Now, the word mind here, this is important, literally means heart. Uh, Gleason Archer says uh, he's very good with 
Hebrew, he says, heart in Scripture, especially Hebrew Scripture, refers to the inner self as the seat of moral reflection, a choice of the will and pattern of behavior. So heart would include the mental processes, the feelings, affections, the emotions. Heart determines how we make decisions and how we respond to situations in life. That's why we say to someone that they might change, uh, that they must change, not might change, they must change their hearts to receive Jesus as Savior, their thinking. And this person, Nebuchadnezzar, was going to be transformed from a man to an animal in his thinking, in his mind, for seven years. The word for times here appears in Scripture only in the book of Daniel. It can mean a period of time or it can mean a year. Seven times would mean seven years. This is the meaning here, as we will see clearly in future chapters. Now, there are several conditions that have symptoms that we read about here. They're really psychological conditions. Uh, one of them is called zoanthropy, a kind of uh, manomania in which the patient believes himself transformed into one of the lower animals. I mean, I, I read a, a number of case studies of this that different commentaries have up, and one guy who thought he was a rabbit for months, and then all of a sudden he just came back to himself. Another thing it's talked about is boanthropy. I think that's how you say it. This is the delusion. One is an ox. <laughs> and then I like this one, lycothropy, a delusion that one has become or assumed the characteristics of a wolf or other animal. And this is where the idea of a werewolf comes from. And so I am sure it's possible that Nebuchadnezzar had one of these psychological conditions. But the point is that God this, did this to Nebuchadnezzar so as to humble him. So Nebuchadnezzar here is still describing the dream to Daniel in verse 17. So still he's describing the dream to Daniel. The decision is announced by messengers. The holy ones declare the verdict so that the living may know that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes and sets over them the lowliest of people. So this is about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar for three reasons. So that the living may know, first, that God reigns or rules among the nations. Secondly, that God gives nations to whomever he wills. And third, God picks the lowliest of men, of people, men and women. In Luke chapter 1, uh, Mary's song, as she's been told by the angels, she's going to have the Messiah in her womb. And she has this song, and part of it says, He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. Or Hannah's prayer in 1 Samuel, the Lord sends poverty and wealth. He humbles and he exalts. He raises the poor from the dust and lifts the needy from the ash heap. He seats them with princesses and has them inherit a throne of honor. For the foundations of the earth are the Lord's. Upon them he has set the world. Regardless of Henley's poem, we are not masters of our fate and captains of our souls. 
No king, president, or prime minister should be filled with pride, for it is not by their ability, but by God's permissive will that they reign or that they serve. And so verse 18, this is the dream that I, King Nebuchadnezzar, had. Now, Belteshazzar, tell me what it means, for none of the wise men of my kingdom can interpret it for me. But you can, because the spirit of the holy, still small g, God's, is in you. And then Daniel, also called Belteshazzar, was greatly perplexed for a time. And his thoughts terrified him. The, the, the idea behind the verse is he was visibly shaken. Visibly shaken. Now, this king had treated Daniel well. But what would happen if Nebuchadnezzar was not in charge? This had to be going through Daniel's mind because he knew what was going to happen here. The king's advisors had tried already to eliminate Daniel and his friends and all the Jews. So what would happen now if the king wasn't around? I mean, this is real drama. If this was a movie, it would, the music would be drawn out and you'd be just sitting there, what's going to happen? But also, notice the respect Nebuchadnezzar has for Daniel. So he can see that Daniel is really shaken up. His face is, he's, probably he's turned white. You know, he's so shocked. So the king said, Belteshazzar, do not let the dream or its meaning alarm you. And Belteshazzar answered, this is, this is amazing. My Lord, if only the dream applied to your enemies and its meaning to your adversaries. I'm actually inspired and humbled by Daniel's loyalty to this king. A king who disbelieved everything Daniel believed about God. It made me ask a question. Could we be missing something here in our desire to confront the world with its sin? Daniel had no vengeful attitude. He did not delight in telling the king that God was about, what God was about to do. He did not gloat over the king's misfortune. What was about to happen to Nebuchadnezzar caused Daniel great grief. You can almost feel it if you really read the passage and think about it. Now he's going to tell the king what shocked him so much. Verse 20. The king you saw, which grew large and strong, with its top touching the sky, visible to the whole earth, with beautiful leaves and abundant fruit, providing food for all, giving shelter to the wild animals and having nesting places in its branches for the birds. Your majesty... You are that tree. That's you. You have become great and strong. Your greatness has grown until it reaches the sky and your dominion extends to distant parts of the earth. This is a picture of how Nebuchadnezzar saw himself, actually. He had no self-image problems. He thought he was great and he had no sense of guilt, no sense of need. Nobody could tell Nebuchadnezzar anything in, Roman, anything in Roman times. When a general was victorious, there was a slave appointed to come and whisper in his ears at an appointed time the words in Latin, uh, homo es, you're only a man. Nebuchadnezzar had forgotten that. We need to work very hard at affirming our dependence on a sovereign God 
we're only men and women, human beings. And life brings us many curveballs. Cancer, accidents, failures, death. But with all that, we can trust God even in the dark times. There's a verse for that, actually. Isaiah chapter 50, verse 10. Who among you fears the Lord and obeys the word of his servant? Let him who walks in the dark, that's when everything's going wrong, who has no light, who can't see any way out. Let him who walks in the dark, who has no light, trust in the name of the Lord and rely on his God. That's an incredible verse. I was only a Christian for maybe a year or two before somebody uh, told me a one-liner that probably came from that verse that has really helped me all through the rest of my Christian life. And it's very simply this. Never doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. That's really important to think deeply about. Never doubt in the dark what you learned in the light. Well, verse 23, your majesty saw a holy one, a messenger, coming down from heaven and saying, cut down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump bound with iron and bronze in the grass of the field while its roots remain in the ground so it can grow again. Then look at his personified now. Do you see it? Let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him live with the wild animals until seven times, seven years pass by for him. Remember, he's already said to him, you are the tree. That's you, Nebuchadnezzar. And now in verse 24, this is the interpretation, your majesty. And this is the decree of the Most High. A decree of the Most High can never be changed. This is the decree the Most High has issued against, amazing, my Lord, the King. You could almost imagine him choking up here. You'll be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox and be drenched with the dew of heaven. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until, until, that's a really big word, until you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign. Notice what it doesn't say. It's not written that way. It doesn't say seven years will pass by and then you will acknowledge. It says seven years will pass by for you until you acknowledge the Most High as sovereign. There's hope in that. Over all the kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. Now, it's important to know that those who have one of the diseases that I mentioned, I outlined earlier, they could still reason. So people who have these conditions, and they still exist today, can still reason humanly. They don't become animals. It almost seems to read that way. He didn't become an animal. He became animal-like in what he was doing and how he was eating and where he was living. And so Nebuchadnezzar never loses his ability to repent of his pride, ever, in the whole time. And another note of interest is that history tells us that during Nebuchadnezzar's time of incapacitation, his son Amal Marduk ruled the country so that the government continued to function normally. And by the way, I'm not, I would... In previous sermons, I've taken a lot of time to prove that this really happened. I just can't be bothered. I, it did really happen. But it is interesting that there's a time in history where there's a seven-year gap in Nebuchadnezzar's reign where it seems like nothing happened. And we do know that Amal Marduk, for some reason, was in charge at that time. We know the reason. But now Daniel offers hope. Hope. 
We have a Daniel right now that's teaching uh, in another part of our property here tonight, an evangelistic uh, uh, course. This is the last night. And uh, he would like this. Verse 26. The command to leave the stump of the tree with its roots means that your kingdom will be restored to you when you acknowledge that heaven rules. It's impossible to have a relationship with God without repentance. The word means more than speaking out a prayer, but it includes a completely changed life. To repent means that I agree with God that I'm wrong and he's right. And in this case, to repent is to agree I'm a prideful man and in need of humbling so that I want to serve my creator God who loved me enough to discipline me for my good and his glory. Therefore, your majesty, be pleased to accept my advice. He's pleading with them. Renounce your sins by doing what is right and your wickedness by being kind to the oppressed. It may be that then your prosperity will continue. What he's saying is maybe you won't have to spend any of those seven years. You see, salvation is a picture of insanity restored. I mean, it says in the Bible that anybody that doesn't believe there's a God is a fool. Well, we could say they're insane to think that. I know, I used to think that. And so salvation is a picture of insanity restored back to sanity, to reality. Salvation is only by grace and by having a personal experience of God. Now, James chapter 2, because some people, literally, there's a whole denomination have taken verse 27, and they have made it proof that you can be saved by doing good works. It doesn't say that. James chapter 2, that's Jesus' half-brother. They grew up together, uh, writes it this way in chapter 2 of verse 18 of his uh, James in the Bible, in the New Testament. Now, someone may argue, some people have faith. Others have good deeds. So it, it, it sounds like this. Now, someone may argue, well, some people believe by faith, and others and they're saved, and others are saved by having good works. But I say, how can you show me your faith if you don't have good deeds? I'll show you my faith by my good deeds. And then he takes off on that in, in his epistle. Well, verse 28. All this happened to King Nebuchadnezzar. Just that's one. All this happened. And so here's how it happened. Now, the next three words are amazing. Next three words, verse 29. Twelve months later. Twelve months later? I mean, is, is this not a great picture of God's patience? Nebuchadnezzar had been king for 30 years. He has seen God do amazing miracles. God blessed him. And now through Daniel, God has warned him to repent, yet God still waits for another year before he disciplines him. God definitely has more patience than I can imagine. Keep in mind, another seven years will have passed, and God's will is still waiting for Nebuchadnezzar. He's still waiting for him. 
This is what Peter meant when he wrote in 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9, the Lord is not slow in keeping his promises, as some understand slowness. No, he's patient. He's patient with you, not wanting anyone to perish, but everyone to come to repentance. Well, back to verse 29. Twelve months later, as the king was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon. So he's got the highest building, and he's walking on the roof, and he's, a, he's looking as far as the eye can see all around him to all of these wonders. It's amazing. And he said, is not this the greatest, the great Babylon I have built as the royal residence by my mighty power and for the glory of my majesty? It's interesting, just a line out of part of a verse in Isaiah chapter 13 reads, Babylon, the jewel of kingdoms. We've dug all this stuff up, and it's amazing. The grandeur of Babylon, the largest city in the world at that time, was legendary. There are many descriptions that are hard even to conceive of. David Jeremiah gives us this description in his book on Daniel, which is really worth reading. It reads like a novel. The walls of Babylon were 387 feet high, which is almost a third of the height of the Empire State Building. And they were 87 feet thick. Each side of the quadrilateral they enclosed was 15 miles in length. Four chariots abreast could be driven on the top of the wall, and one of the great sports was to have races on them. Imagine them going around and around the city like an elaborate train around a Christmas tree. The mighty Euphrates River flowed through the midst of the city, which had a population of two million. On one bank of the river, uh, there were abundant terraces that led to a central altar, and in the middle of the city was the huge temple of Bel, the god Bel, with all its temples and palaces. If we had walked around Babylon at that time, we would have been awed at the spacious gardens and orchards that produced enough to feed the whole population. Archaeological digs today have found bricks used to build the city, and Nebuchadnezzar's name is stamped on every one of them. He took the glory for all he had created and gave none to the one who created him. And so here he is on top of his palace looking out over all that he has done. And then in verse 31, it says, Even as the words were on his lips, a voice came from heaven. This is what is decreed for you, King Nebuchadnezzar. Your royal authority has been taken from you. You will be driven away from people and will live with the wild animals. You'll eat grass like the ox. Seven times, seven years will pass by for you until, there's still hope there, you acknowledge that the Most High is sovereign over all kingdoms on earth and gives them to anyone he wishes. And then it says, immediately, what had been said about Nebuchadnezzar was fulfilled. He was driven away from people and ate grass like the ox. His body was drenched with the dew of heaven until his hair grew like the feathers of an eagle and his nails like the claws of a bird. Well, now let's go back to Nebuchadnezzar's testimony. We started out with him, in a sense, on the stage here saying, I, I just want to tell you about all this. So he starts off by saying, here's what I was like and everything. But now he says, at the end of that time, I, Nebuchadnezzar, 
raised my eyes toward heaven, and my sanity was restored. And then I praised the Most High. I honored and glorified Him who lives forever. His dominion is an eternal dominion. His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the peoples of the earth are regarded as nothing. He does as He pleases with the powers of heaven and the peoples of the earth. No one can hold back His hand or question Him or say to Him, What have you done? The restoration of sanity comes at the point of humility. When Nebuchadnezzar realized just how he related to the God of heaven, he was able to worship God and admit his own relative smallness. There's a statement in 1 Samuel regarding the tribe of Levi, but describing one of God's principles. 1 Samuel 2.30. Therefore the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I will honor those who honor me and I'll despise those who think lightly of me. Now look at verse 36 in your Bibles. At the same time, Nebuchadnezzar is still speaking, at the same time that my sanity was restored, my honor and splendor were returned to me for the glory of my kingdom. My advisors and nobles sought me out, and I was restored to my throne and became even greater than before. Now, now some commentators suggest Nebuchadnezzar had learned nothing and was returning to his prideful self. Personally, I don't agree. I think this clearly pictures his salvation, and that is why he's even greater than before. Uh, I could say, you know, before I became a, uh, a Christian, we were doing really well and had this and this and this and this and this kind of cars and all of that kind of stuff, and then I got saved, and then everything fell apart, and we lost everything, and then God gave it all back even better than before, and it's true. But the better was a better better. <laughs> and uh, so some, but still some commentators, they go on and on about it here, and, and uh, they say, no, he, he's not saved. And I respect their opinion, and I'll ask Nebuchadnezzar about it when I meet him in heaven. Here's the conclusion of the matter, verse 37. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and exalt and glorify the king of heaven, because everything he does is right, and all his ways are just, and those who walk in pride he is able to humble. Now the Bible has a lot to say about pride. Proverbs 16, 18. Pride goes before destruction and a haughty spirit before a fall. James chapter 4, verse 10, humble yourselves before the Lord, and he will lift you up. 1 Peter chapter 5, part of verse 5 and all of 6, God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. This is a story that uh, I think really demonstrates the awful power of pride. Napoleon is portrayed by the artist he commissioned to memorialize him as a strutting little man standing defiantly with his right hand pushed between his vest buttons or as a hero astride a fiery steed pointing the way for his troops across the Alps. His bicorn hat made him instantly recognizable and imitated at costume parties throughout the years. He was proud, driven by ambition to conquer Europe. 
on the morning of the Valley of Waterloo, now the Battle of Waterloo, now I don't know how, how up to date are you on that, but it used to be in my lifetime a really common, what's your Waterloo, or they're having their Waterloo. And it wasn't a good thing to have a Waterloo. On the morning of the Battle of Waterloo, Napoleon was described was describing to his commanding officer a strategy for the day's campaign. And he said, we'll put the infantry here, and we'll put the cavalry here, and uh, we'll put the artillery over in that spot over there. And at the end of the day, England will be at the feet of France, and Wellington will be the prisoner of Napoleon. The commanding officer responded with these words, but we must not forget that man proposes and God disposes. With typical arrogance, the little dictator pulled his body up to his full five feet two, and he replied, I want you to understand, sir, that Napoleon proposes and Napoleon disposes. Victor Hugo wrote, from that moment, Waterloo was lost for God sent rain and hail so that the troops of Napoleon could not maneuver as he had planned. And on the night of battle, it was Napoleon who was prisoner of Wellington and France was at the feet of England. You see, Jesus is the Lord of lords and the King of kings. Therefore, the King of heaven. And we can trust him. God's purpose, his patience, is to give everyone who is born a chance to acknowledge him as the sovereign God and to know Jesus Christ as the only way to heaven. I can sort of imagine Nebuchadnezzar thinking, well, maybe the God of Daniel will give me a break, or maybe this was just a bad dream. God had warned Nebuchadnezzar, but he had hardened himself to the warning. And the rest was somewhat catastrophic. I've been at many Billy Graham crusades, and he often had very unusual ways to close his invitations. And um, I was thinking about this uh, whole sermon I thought, what would be a good way to close it? Well, a good way to close it is to say we need to make sure we have gotten rid of our pride. We realize we're not indispensable and that we need one another. And we also, I think another thing that is important is the urgency of all of this. It's not only because I'm old, and I'm, not, I'm sincere about what I'm saying here. It's not only because I'm old that I'm realizing more and more how how quickly life ends because uh, so many people that, from movie stars to sports figures to famous uh, people of all types and friends uh, are disappearing from this earth. Some of them aren't that old. And so it's, it's never too late to start over. That was one of my... I used to write that on my pad when I was a stockbroker. Every day I wrote that at the top of my yellow pad. Didn't have all the stuff we have today. It's never too late to start over. And, uh, but one day it will be too late if we haven't started over. And uh, Billy was doing a, uh, a thing one night when he used to do this. I've seen him do it more than once where he would tell people that they needed to make a decision. And uh, this one night, he's banging like this on a, a pulpit. And he says, we've only got so much time to make a decision. 
And you need to do it tonight. And you, if you've ever, I don't know if anybody's here been to Billy Graham Crusades. I've been to a lot of them. Way, you way up there in the higher bleachers, we'll wait for you. You come on down, start coming down right now. And, and he's given the invitation. And he said, don't wait, don't procrastinate. As loud as he can, he's banging and he's banging. And he says, I read the story of a blacksmith some years ago who obtained a dog. And when you visited the blacksmith's shop, you could hear the dog barking along with the loud clanging of the blacksmith's hammer. But as time went on, the dog barked less frequently until you could visit the shop and see the dog sound asleep, regardless of the noise in the shop. I was sitting in my office one day as a stockbroker at 4 o'clock in the morning getting ahead of everybody. I'd led a man to the Lord by the name of Jerry. He somehow found out that I was doing this. The phone rings at four in the morning. I'm the only one in the brokerage office, a large office. There's somebody else answers phones, but there's nobody else there. It just kept ringing. So I wonder who that could be. We didn't have spam calls and stuff like that like today. And I pick up the phone and said, hello? And the voice at the other end he didn't identify himself, but I knew Jerry's voice. He said, unless the Lord builds a house, the work of the builders is wasted. Unless the Lord protects a city, guarding it with centuries will do no good. It is useless for you to work so hard from early morning until late at night, anxiously working for food to eat, for God gives sleep to his loved ones, and he hung up. I never went in at 4 o'clock in the morning again. <laughs> Stand with me while I pray for you. Father, help us to be rid of our own pride and our own sense of... When we think we're indispensable, Father, that's when we worry about things. That's when we get all uptight. That's when we can't laugh anymore or enjoy our life anymore. Help us to truly become indispensable in other people's lives as others become indispensable in our lives. Help us, Father, to work hard at that and to really enjoy the fact that you have given us life and that as we are filled with your spirit and as we grow and are sanctified more and more, many people will be asking us for the reason for the, for the hope that is within us. Help us to be hopeful people regardless of the circumstances all around us. And just fill us with your spirit, Father. Help us to bring many others to know the Lord Jesus Christ. It's in his name we pray. Amen.